You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin. And I'm your host. This week, we're covering Warner Brothers, one of the oldest and biggest of the Big Five. Founded by a quad of brothers, the studio that would bring them fame and fortune would also be the thing that tore their family apart. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. While the youngest of them would eventually overshadow the other three, the Warner brothers were just that. Albert, Sam, Harry, and Jack Wanskalosser, four out of the 12 children of a Polish immigrant shoemaker who bounced his family back and forth between Baltimore and Canada before the family finally settled in Youngstown, Ohio. Benjamin and Pearl Warner came to the Americas, according to his son Harry, to find work, and to be able to better educate their children. In 1903, Sam and Harry, the latter of whom was working as a shoeshiner and a newsie, spent an afternoon at a Nickelodeon, sitting through three picture shows before being kicked out by the owner. Seeing the massive crowds around the theater, inspiration struck. They wanted, they needed, to get into the motion pictures ASAP. Their brother Albert had come to the same conclusion after falling in love with short films. Sam found an ad for a projector that came with a film print of Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery, and the family pulled their money in the hopes of acquiring the machine. When they came up short, their father sold an heirloom gold watch and a horse he used for his meat business to cover the remaining expense. The Warner Brothers were in business. Using an old sheet as a screen and borrowing chairs from next door's funeral parlor, the brothers opened their first theater in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. It was a family affair from the beginning, with each of their siblings and parents taking on a role in the new business. When it became difficult to acquire films and realizing it was more popular to distribute films than exhibit them, the Warner Brothers started the Duquesne Film Company compiling films not only for them, but for other local theaters to rent. In defiance of Edison's MPPC, the Motion Pictures Patent Company, and their attempts to force producers and theaters to get licenses to make or exhibit films, the Warner Brothers started making their own films in 1912. Their first, which they shot in St. Louis, Missouri, was called The Covered Wagon, a two-reel western. Eventually, in an attempt to escape the claws of the MPPC like many other studios, the Warner Brothers made their way west, where they would be harder to control. Success didn't come overnight for the brothers, who struggled financially for several years. 
To make ends meet, Sam and Jack made training videos for the army during World War I before tiring of working for others and made My Four Years in Germany in 1918. The film depicted the horrors of the war and the atrocities of the Kaiser soldiers. Based on the memoir of James W. Gerard, the ambassador to Germany during the war, the resulting film, indicative of the tones and messages in their future bodies of work, was a financial hit, allowing the brothers to lease their first Hollywood studio on Sunset Boulevard the following year. The land, located on modern 6050 Sunset Boulevard, still holds a film studio, now known as Sunset Gower Studios, which as of 2020 is Hollywood's largest independent backlot. The film had also created Hollywood's first back-end deal. Harry, who had promised the highest returns to Gerard in order to acquire the rights to make the film, convinced the author that Warner Brothers was the largest studio in Hollywood and therefore gave him the best chance of making optimum cash. Still young, still fledgling, the brothers assumed their official roles in the new company. Harry became the president and would spend much of his time in New York acquiring funding for their studio. Albert handled distribution and exhibitor relations. Sam became the producer and acquired the content on which they based their films as well as budding technologies. And Jack, a.k.a. J.L., oversaw the day-to-day operations of the studio. In 1920, Sam convinced his brothers that in order to appear successful, they needed to own a studio, not just lease space. Sam had found a $2,500 plot of land a short ways from their current rented home. Despite the other brothers' reservations, Sam won them over and a deal was struck. Still struggling on, the first Warner Brothers studio, modern-day Sunset Bronson Studio, came to fruition. While the brothers missed multiple payments on their lot the first year and did an ironic twist of fate, struggled to find theaters that would show their films, the reason they got into this business in the first place, gave them unreliable box office returns on their films and therefore their young company. Somehow, the brothers managed to evade eviction, confident that their luck would change, which seemed to be enough to convince investors. Banker Motley Flint, who had helped the brothers on one of their earlier films, Tiger's Claw, issued Harry a million-dollar line of credit to keep them in business, which Harry used to secure other loans, many from shady loan sharks, instead of paying off the company's many, many other debts in order to grow the studio further. Popular hits for the studio at this time included the Rin Tin Tin film, Where the North Begins, which in 1923 saved Warner from bankruptcy. One of the story writers for the Rin Tin Tin series was a young Daryl F. Zanuck, writing under a pseudonym. Zanuck would write 40 scripts for Warner Brothers in a period of about five years, becoming head of production in 1931. Always the more technically minded of the brothers, Sam attempted to convince them to invest on an experimental sound system called the Vitaphone in April of 1925. The other brothers were tepid at best on this untested method, causing Sam to buy several of the patents of the Vitaphone with his own money. 
Sam went so far as to threaten jumping ship and taking the process to Paramount. The studio, his wife, actress Lena Biscat, was contracted. Harry would eventually concede, partially after family pressure, and once again throw the future of the studio into jeopardy, purchasing the Vitagraph in the process with a $7 million loan. The first Vitaphone experiments were filmed in Brooklyn to tepid results from audiences. The resulting experiments made the brothers realize that audiences would need to be trained to watch sync sound films. To do this, they made a film that would feature synced music and sound effects, but no dialogue. 1926's Don Juan was the first film to use the expensive Vitaphone system. The film starred John Barrymore, and while well-received, there is a limitation to the theaters the film could run in. Additionally, the lack of dialogue makes the film essentially indistinguishable from a silent film of the era, most of which were accompanied by live music anyway. The next sound film, starring an actor, comedian, and singer by the name of Al Jolson, would tell the story of a young Jewish man defying his traditional family in 1927's The Jazz Singer. Jolson's first lines in the film, lines he ad-libbed on the day, and the first lines ever captured on motion picture would be, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. While there were many kinks to be ironed out with the new system, including how to edit sound and film without losing synchronization of the two, an issue which would lead to the introduction of the sound engineer, a job title invented for Nathan Levinson, who figured out how to create a master of the sound in order to dub in effects and allow editing without losing sync or sound quality. There were creative issues to consider as well, for example, how loud the volume of something should be depending on where the camera was pointing and what angle was being used. The resulting rules they implemented would set the precedent for all sound films going forward. Sam's persistence over Vitaphone would bring the family business its biggest hit to date, catapulting the sound film into mass popularity. But he would never get to experience the spoils or watch from his Hollywood office as the entire industry scrambled to catch up with Warner Brothers in the coming years. On October 5th, 1927, the day before the New York premiere of The Jazz Singer, Sam Warner died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Jack would later refer to the film as a hollow victory, claiming, quote, There's no doubt the jazz singer killed Sam. The 40-year-old movie mogul left behind his 20-year-old widow, an 11-month-old daughter who would be raised by Harry and his wife, Rhea. Within a year, 400 theaters had been fitted to exhibit the Vitagraph sound film. However, as mentioned last week, Fox and Western Electric had come up with a more efficient system, placing the sound on the sides of the film, which theater owners and other studios preferred. Caving into the pressure, Harry would switch over to this process, creating a universal sound system within the studios. With the success of The Jazz Singer, Warner Brothers was catapulted out of Poverty Row, a name given to the smaller studios at the time, and into the big leagues where they remain to this day. Wanting to expand further, Harry bought a chain of theaters from the Stanley Theater Corporation in September 1928, putting a permanent end to the studio's distribution problems. By 1929, he would also purchase First National Pictures, a more internationally known studio at the time, with the promise that the name First National would not die with the acquisition. 
Harry made good on this promise, and a first national picture played in front of many of Warner Brothers' films as late as 1958. While puzzling to some at the time, astute businessman Harry knew that the banner of First National would carry higher rental fees than Warner Brothers had at the time. Internationally, the Warner Brothers logo meant almost nothing. First National, however, carried quite a bit more prestige. Also with this acquisition, Warner gained First National's film library, the largest North American theater chain, and perhaps most importantly, Warner Brothers acquired 68 acres of farmland, currently under construction to convert the land into a film studio, the land that would become the home to Warner Brothers Studios. We're in the money, we're in the money, we've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money, the sky is sunny, oh man depression you are through, you done us wrong. We never see headlines about red line today, and when we see the landlord we can look that guy right in the eye. Oh, we're in the money, come on my honey. Musicals were incredibly fruitful in the early days of sound, and Warner Brothers had its own string of hits before audiences tired of them, including the Gold Diggers musicals and Footlight Parade, both of which were choreographed by Busby Berkeley. Berkeley is credited with creating the kaleidoscope effect, which was prevalent in the early musicals of the era, before eventually turning to directing. Busby's films were highly profitable, but his career would become derailed after being arrested for killing three people whilst driving drunk. Warner Brothers was barely feeling the strains of the Great Depression. Harry continued to buy studios and diversified the company's holdings. The pain for them wouldn't kick in until 1931, when the company lost about $8 million and an additional 14 the next year. Musicals were losing popularity fast, and despite two late successful outings in the medium with 42nd Street in 1933 and Gold Diggers of 1933, Warner turned their sights on producing socially realistic films. And I kind of took pride in you, Joe. Brought you into the gang, pushed your head, but now you're getting to be a sissy. We've got to go into that again. Can't you just forget about me? No, I don't want to forget, Joe. You're my pal. We started off together, didn't we? Well, we got to keep going along together. Who else have I got to give a hang about? I need you, Joe. I got the biggest chance of my life. The big boy just handed me the whole north side. But it's too much for one man to handle alone. I need somebody, somebody to work in with me, a guy like you, somebody I can trust. Can't be me, Rico. I've quit. You didn't quit. Nobody ever quit me. You're still in my gang. Do you get that? I don't care how many fancy skirts you got hanging on to you. That Jane of yours can go hang. It's her that's made a softie out of you. You lay off, Olga Rico. I lay off her. I'm after her. One of us has got to lose and ain't going to be me. There's ways of stopping that, Dame. You're crazy. Leave her out of this. Yeah, she's through. She's out of the way. That's what she is. You're lying. You wouldn't dare. I wouldn't, would I? I'll show you. Rico, listen. I love her. We're in love with one another. Don't that mean nothing to you? Nothing. Less than nothing. Love. Soft stuff. 
When she's got you, she ain't no good for anything. A big hallmark of the Warner Brothers catalog in the pre-Hays Code days was the gangster movie. Warner Brothers' first gangster movie, Little Caesar, in 1931, was a financial success, but it would be the public enemy the same year, which would make a movie star out of its leading man, James Cagney, that would cause an influx of the gangster film, so much so that Warner would soon be known as the Gangster Studio. On pretty much the complete opposite side of the spectrum from the gangster movie, Harry also approved the production of the Merry Melodies cartoons in 1931. These shorts would introduce the world to Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, et al. It gave the brothers a chance to showcase their playful side in addition to their films about social injustice. What's up, Doc? There's a rabbit down there, and I'm trying to catch him. Uh, what do you mean, a uh, rabbit? Rabbits, rabbits. You know, with big, long ears. Oh, like these? Yeah, and a little white, fluffy tail. Like this? Yep. And he hops around and around. Oh, like this? You know, I believe this fella is a R-A-B-B-I-T. Unafraid to show the less than savory aspects of American life, Warner Brothers wished not only for the films of the studio to entertain audiences, but to educate them as well. The film I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang in 1932 showed audiences the horrors occurring in the American prison system of the day. Prison reform came swiftly in the U.S. as the result of what audiences saw portrayed in the film. Warner was also sued by the Ku Klux Klan due to similar costumes to theirs being depicted in Black Legion in 1937. Believing that the film was made to belittle them, the Klan unsuccessfully sued Warner. In a sign of troubles to come, in the mid-1930s, Harry Warner and six other movie moguls were put on trial for allegedly violating the Sherman Antitrust Act by gaining a monopoly over St. Louis's movie theaters. While the resulting trial ended in a mistrial, Harry sold off the company's theaters to be safe. In sibling news, Harry and Jack were constantly at odds with each other from nearly day one. Jack, ever the little brother, resented Harry's authority over him, and Harry saw Jack as a directionless womanizer. To avoid being in the same room as one another, the two would take drastically different lunchtimes while brother Albert was forced to play intermediary for the two. The tension was so immense that Harry originally wanted his son Louis to succeed him as president of the studio, not Jack. Unfortunately, Louis would pass away in 1931 at the age of 23 from an infection from a pulled wisdom tooth. Completely immersed in the glitz and glamour of show business, Jack was rarely present at family functions. Jack was also famously brash and preferred to play the Hollywood game versus Harry's more family man tendencies, coupled with a desire to release more moral message films. Harry wasn't Jack's only sparring partner. Though she would become one of Warner Brothers' more successful stars, Betty Davis and Jack had it out many times over her career and contract. She claimed Jack was giving her bad roles on purpose to prevent her career from growing. Davis went so far as to flee to Canada to keep from being served breach of contract papers when she refused to show up to set. 
Davis would unsuccessfully sue Warner Brothers in Canadian court and was forced to return to Hollywood to fulfill her contract, now in debt. Davis's second film upon returning to Warner was the William Wyler film Jezebel, which would earn the actress her second Academy Award. By 1940, she would be Warner's highest-grossing star, and Davis would remain with the studio until the end of the decade. You're a strange man. Strange? Because I can feel for beaten, helpless people? No, you're strange because you want to do something about it. You're willing to, to risk your own life. And one of those men was a Norman. Norman or Saxon? What's that matter? It's injustice I hate, not the Normans. But it's lost you your rank, your lands, it's made you a hunted outlaw when you might have lived in comfort and security. What's your reward for all this? Reward? Just don't understand. Though still primarily known for their low-budget gangster films, the first big-budget film for Warner Brothers would be a $2 million film starring Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, 1938's Robin Hood. Though hardly his first starring role, the film would forever attach Errol Flynn with the image of a swashbuckler. Flynn and de Havilland were proven to be a successful pair and would altogether make nine films with each other. But more than that, the film would prove that Warner could do more than just make cheap gangster movies. Unlike some of their studio contemporaries, the Warner Brothers didn't shy away from standing up against the growing turmoil in Europe. In 1934, despite potential financial ruin, Harry pulled all Warner Brothers releases out of Nazi Germany, the first American studio to do so, and the only for several years. When the Hays Code came into effect, heavily restricting the content of motion pictures, Warner had to find a new way to get their messages across on screen. The office denied every Nazi-based script the studios wanted to make, until an undercover Nazi ring was discovered in the U.S. by the FBI in 1938. One year later, Warner Brothers seized the opportunity of the lightning of the Hays Code as far as Nazis were concerned and released Confessions of a Nazi Spy. The goals of Nazi Spy was to open the eyes to the, at the time, war-averse American public. The film addresses Hitler, the concentration camps, and the rampant anti-Semitism that existed in Europe at the time. Many actors refused parts out of fear for their families that lived in occupied territories, and the German council traveled to the Hayes office, threatening to ban all American films in Germany if Nazi spy was released anywhere. Jack Warner received a threatening package in the mail, which contained the blueprints to his home and a letter alluding to violence if the film was even produced. They made it anyway. Two years later, in November 1941, Harry Warner was summoned in front of a congressional council to testify on the usage of film as propaganda and was accused of creating hysteria to get America to enter the war. Harry responded, quote, the only crime we are guilty of is accurately portraying reality. National attitudes would change one week later with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Going back to their roots in a way, Warner Brothers produced training videos for this new batch of soldiers, as they had two decades earlier during World War I. They also dispatched the biggest names of the day to fundraise war bonds. 
One of the Warner Brothers' most enduring films, Casablanca, in 1942, encouraged its audiences to fight against fascism. At its center is Rick Blaine, a nightclub owner who, despite his desire to maintain neutrality in all things, finds himself having to take a stand against the events of the world outside the walls of Casablanca. The film would bring Warner Brothers its second Academy Award for Best Picture after 1937's The Life of Emile Zola. At the end of the war, as I'm sure you're tired of hearing by now, came a series of troubles for all the studios. Jack Warner was brought in front of the House of Un-American Activities Council to testify on the growing fear that communists had infiltrated Hollywood. Jack pledged to support the HUAC and whatever they required for their investigations. Jack would even give up names in the hearings. Harry's health was deteriorating fast, and other members of the family encouraged him to retire. Jack managed to find a, quote, buyer for the studio, the Semenko Allen Group, who would own it for only one day before selling it back to Jack. The family studio now belonged to Jack Warner, and only Jack Warner, locking out and betraying the rest of his family. Albert never spoke to his brother again, and Harry never stepped foot on the back lot again. Harry would suffer a debilitating stroke not long after Jack consumed control of the studio and passed away on July 25, 1958. Six days later, Jack, while vacationing in France, was in a terrible car crash which landed him in a coma, an accident he could have avoided had he attended his brother's funeral back in the States. Jack Warner would not see his new empire for six months. I actually fell for him. And the match seemed practical, too. For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready a minute, to retire. Martha. And we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. Oh, what you want. I wouldn't go on with this if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? Will you not? You've already sprung a leak about you-know-what. What? What? About the sprout, the little bugger, our son. If you start in on this other business, Martha, I warn you. I stand warned. Do we really have to go through all this? So anyway, I married the SOP. I had it all planned out. First, he'd take over the history department. Then when Daddy retired, he'd take over the whole college, you know? That was the way it was supposed to be. Getting angry, baby, huh? That was the way it was supposed to be. All very simple. And Daddy thought it was a good idea, too, for a while. Until he started watching for a couple of years getting angry until he watched for a couple of years and started thinking that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all that maybe georgie boy didn't have the stuff that maybe he didn't have it in it stop it martha like hell i will you see george didn't have much push he wasn't particularly aggressive in fact he was sort of a flop a great big fat flop stop it martha I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary, not on an associate professor's salary. After hiring an attorney to fire his own son for allegedly leaking false information about Jack's condition to the press, Jack returned to the studio. Jack was now free to make the risky films his brothers were slightly more adverse to, including the Mike Nichols picture, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Audiences' tastes were changing, and Jack wasn't afraid to take the risks to figure out what those were. While Jack had recognized the change, he, like his other studio head counterparts, proved widely unable to fully adjust to the shifting tides. For example, 
When Jack first saw Bonnie and Clyde, he told its producer and star Warren Beatty that he and director Arthur Penn had made a, quote, three-piss picture. Jack was famously known for judging movies by this rating system. If he didn't mind relieving himself during a film, it meant to him that it wasn't very good. He was famously wrong, and the film, despite his hesitancy to even market it, was a financial and critical smash. In November of 1966, growing tired of making films, Jack sold control of the studio and its music business to Seven Arts Productions, run by two Canadian investors, Elliot and Kenneth Hyman. While originally staying on as president of the renamed Warner Bros. Seven Arts, more in name than in duties, Jack's last studio film as president was Camelot, a musical based on the legend of King Arthur that tanked at the box office and led to Jack giving up his position as president to his vice president, Ben Kalmanson. The era of Warner Brothers being led by a Warner Brother ended in 1967. Jack was still kept on in an even more diminished role, though this was incredibly brief as well, as the Hymans quickly tired of Jack Warner's behavior. Even as a vice president, Warner's influence over the studio he built with his brothers was irrefutable. The Hymans found another buyer, Kinney National Company. Irate, Jack left to become an independent producer, which he did until the early 1970s. Jack Warner would pass away in 1978 at the age of 86. With a new, new regime in place, the powers that be wanted to bring star power back to Warner Brothers. Paul Newman, Barbara Streisand, Clint Eastwood, and Robert Redford all signed deals with the studio. Warner Brothers reinvigorated, continued their tradition of progressive films. Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles, William Friedkin's The Exorcist, the first horror movie to be nominated for Best Picture, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets were just a few of the films that Warner released during the 1970s. In a sign of things to come, Warner Brothers would also enter into a series of co-productions, something that's actually very common today. This allows independent producers and film companies to have their work seen by larger audiences. The first co-production occurred upon discovering that 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers both purchased books about burning high-rises. Instead of fighting to become the first studio to release their film, Fox and Warner teamed up and made 1973's The Towering Inferno, which would turn a huge profit for both studios. 
Kinney National opted to sell its other holdings in parking lots and funeral homes to focus on entertainment in the early 70s, renaming itself Warner Communications in 1972. It would smartly spend the better part of the next decade expanding into other parts of entertainment, including video game company Atari Inc. and Six Flags theme parks, the latter of which they would sell in 1998. To cut costs, in 1972, Warner Brothers and the nearly bankrupt Columbia Pictures entered into a partnership called the Burbank Studios, or TBS. TBS would oversee the day-to-day of the studio's backlots and their upkeep. While the partnership was less than fruitful as both studios fought over what should be spent and where, it did, however, allow Warner, more than the other members of the Big Five, to hold on to the majority of their backlot when times got tough. With the purchase of Lorimar Telepictures in 1989, Warner Brothers gained control of the former MGM backlot, and with no need for two backlots, Warner sold the old MGM lot to Sony Pictures, which they remain in control of to this day. Columbia was moved to Culver City and was also eventually acquired by Sony. Warner Brothers kept the Columbia Movie Ranch, renaming it the Warner Brothers Ranch. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. In 1989, Warner Communications merged with Time Inc. and the holding company was renamed Time Warner. Warner would continue to put out a string of hits, expanding further into television, something they were more known for in the 90s than their film output, though there was plenty of that, including 1993's Free Willy, 1999's The Matrix, and who could forget 1996's Mars Attacks. Modern-day hits for the studio are hard to miss unless you haven't been in a movie theater or a bookstore in the last 20 years. In the late 1990s, the studio acquired the rights to the massively popular Harry Potter book series and would release the subsequent eight films based on the original series and, as of the release of this episode, two spin-off films. Warner Brothers had prior successes in the superhero genre starting in the 1970s, with TV shows based on their subsidiary DC Comics' characters Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Soon after had come the Christopher Reeves' Superman films in the 70s and 80s, as well as the many late 80s, early 90s outings of Batman. In the mid to late 2000s, director Christopher Nolan released a trilogy of financially successful and critically acclaimed Batman films for the studio. With the success of that other superhero franchise in the last 10 years, Warner Brothers wanted in on the game as well, with their DC Expanded Universe. Eight films have been released to date, with one more potentially on the way this year, COVID permitting, to varying levels of reception. Time Warner was acquired by AT&T in June 2018 and renamed Warner Media. 
Turner Broadcasting, which had been acquired by Time Warner in 1996, was included in the purchase and was subsequently dissolved, merging all of its subsidiaries, including Cartoon Network and Boomerang, under Warner Brothers. Most recently, as a sign of the times, HBO Max, owned by the Warner Media Company, was released in May of 2020, featuring content from the company's over 100-year history, its subsidiaries, as well as an original slate of upcoming programming, time will tell how it fares against the other streaming platforms. One of these bullets is like us, traveling forwards through time. The other one's going backwards. Can you tell which is which? How about now? Why does it feel so strange? You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Whoa. I didn't win back in myself. Four down, one to go. Next week, we're going over the youngest and the only defunct member of the Big Five, RKO, the first film studio founded with the intention of releasing sound films. As always, there will be corresponding images posted on all social media, and if there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. In the show notes, you'll find some recommended viewing and where you can stream them, Note that this is based on a North American market, as well as my sources for the episode. I do a lot of research and a lot of fact-checking, but I'm on a pretty tight schedule, so if I got anything wrong, please let me know and I will correct it in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. They land.